Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you to the second week of our four-week series on God's grace. Last week, we discovered something, and hopefully, if you were here, you remember that something, a truth that God's grace means so much more than forgiveness, that God's grace can, in fact, teach us a new and better way to live. You see, there's a great challenge facing followers of Christ today, and I'm not talking about the worldly challenges, living in a world that seems to be going further and further away from God's morals and values. No, I'm talking about something within the church, because it seems like we have a limited concept of God's grace. The grace of God, a reality greater than the human mind can grasp, more accessible than the air that we breathe, grace has been captured God's grace has been domesticated for daily and weekly use. The grace of God, which is capable of reaching across every culture, every gender, every generation, has been reduced to mean simply, I'm forgiven. You see, we have turned grace to our own uses instead of his. Many people are comfortable with this phrase, God loves me just the way I am. But if you take it one step further, it becomes a little less comfortable. God loves me so much that he won't let me stay just the way I am. Last week we learned from Paul's writings to Titus that first God's grace saves, then it teaches us. Now most of us are okay with reinforcing and receiving forgiveness, but maybe we perhaps have skipped school when it comes time to learn how to deny living in the passions of this world, to respond to grace, to live sensible and upright lives, if you remember our passages from last week. But Christians, eh, maybe we can be excused if we're a little confused, because week after week and year after year we are told of Jesus' complete work for us on that cross. We are told week after week and year after year that there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn God's approval or his salvation. And then we hear those wonderful words of absolution that we are forgiven and we are assured in our Lutheran heritage that that is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Yeah, that's true. But... We are then also encouraged to live holy lives and to keep the commandments, just as our gospel lesson read. Jesus said, don't forget about living according to God's will. I have come, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. That doesn't mean you're off the hook. Richard Foster, a man who has spent his entire adult life encouraging Christians to grow in the grace of God, has said, The message of grace is something more than merely a means for gaining forgiveness. And we would think confession and absolution every single time that we come. Grace is more than just that. Foster goes on to say that in most pulpits, there seems to be a disconnect between the good news of Jesus' sacrifice and then our calling to become the light of the world. Hearing the same message week after week, along with that same remedy, They remain in the same place. Having been saved by grace, Foster writes, these people have become paralyzed by it. Yeah, if we remain camped at the notion that God's grace is merely another way to describe forgiveness, you and I will never be able to discover that there is a grace for our everyday lives, every relationship that we have, and how we go and minister to others. 
You don't think that you minister to others? You absolutely do. If you are a Christian, whether people know it or not, you are ministering to others. In the New Testament alone, there are so many connecting points. There are connecting points between grace and truth. We hear in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We hear connections between grace and the power afforded to us. Paul wrote of Jesus saying to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There's connections between grace and the spiritual gifts that are given to us. In his grace, God has given us each different gifts for doing certain things well. Connecting points between grace and being thankful. Again, from 2 Corinthians, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. There's connection points between grace and being generous. Again, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord to help complete your act of grace. And there are connecting points between grace and everything God provides for us. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, you have everything that you need, maybe not everything that you want, you are given everything that you need to do God's work so that in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. My friends, this short list, it isn't even complete, the connecting points between grace and our lives. But if our view of grace is limited to just simply receiving forgiveness, Jesus cannot be our model for how to receive grace and then live in that grace and depend upon that grace. Who was it that taught Peter, John, Paul, and the countless other believers to live that kind of grace-filled life that we see in the book of Acts and throughout the history of the church? We need to ask ourselves, how does grace apply to our everyday life? in a manner that we're aware of and we know how to use it. To those of us who have been in church for some time, we, we understand that grace means that Christians have gotten a very good deal. We have gotten something we do not deserve. We have gotten in certain church circles what they call God's unmerited favor through no merit or worthiness in me, we would say. Or I like this acronym too, God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. Now, all of these ideas are true. All of these ideas and ideals about grace, but they only tell us part of the truth. And these partial truths alone can actually harm our spiritual formation, it said. How many times have you heard, I'm just a sinner saved by grace? We say there's nothing inside of me that's good. I'll always be a sinner because that's what I'll always be doing. Some people have sung that tune for their entire lives. It seems like when they agreed with the sin diagnosis, they apparently thought that it described a permanent condition or at least a permanent condition here in this world before they go to heaven. Dallas Willard warns us against the idea that the low level of spiritual living among professing Christians is to be regarded as something that's just natural. It's only what to be expected because we hold a wrong notion that our de destiny is but constant failure. We hold a wrong notion that Christ's ministry is nothing more than an unending cycle of sin and then forgiveness. 
Many believers have experienced a new birth, a new creation, but are convinced that their spiritual state in this life is to forever remain an infant. Yeah, when I get to heaven, it's going to be made much more clear. When I get to heaven, I'll have everything that I need. What about this life? It seems we have over-talked about what sin takes away from us, and we have under-talked about what the Spirit has put into us. See, Dr. Willard is concerned with more than the cure, and that Christ's forgiveness to us, it is absolutely a cure. Our life with God must start with that cure, but the possibilities of a new life in Christ are quite literally endless. There's a preacher who tells about a friend who ends every prayer with this phrase. He says, forgive us for the many ways that we failed you. In your name we pray. Amen. The preacher said, it doesn't matter if he's blessing the food before a meal or asking wisdom about an important decision. The closing is his default praise to God, like a signature at the end of your email. And I'm sure this man is very very sincere every time that he prays it. But you just got to wonder if Jesus gets tired of hearing those words. No relationship on earth could survive if one partner continually affirmed that I'm no good, I'll never live up. What kind of a relationship do you live in that requires a, a constant, constant rehashing out of our inadequacies? I don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes, confession is an absolutely wonderful, powerful way to unburden myself, to affirm the condition that God would see me in, and to accept that without the Lord standing in for me at that cross, that my destiny, it would hold no hope. But friends, on the other side of absolution, I'm free. I'm free to praise God. I'm free to uplift others and encourage others. I'm free to respond in power and a selflessness in my Lord's mission for my life. But if I'm only focused and I continually focus on what I lack as a wretched, sin-filled soul, I might as well just go back and maintain an Old Testament relationship with God. The book of Hebrews discusses the practice of what forgiveness looked like before Jesus he talks about it in Hebrews chapter 10. He said this, he said, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, day after day and year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. He continues, Otherwise would they not have stopped being offered? For those worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of their sins. The Old Testament sacrificial system, that's how you got right with God. That's how you received forgiveness for those sins that you had committed. And it wasn't a once and done. It was an over and over, daily and weekly, and at the high holidays, and an annual one, which the author of Hebrew is talking about. Note the final phrase here. The people of the Old Testament experienced an annual reminder of their sins. The friend of this preacher reminds himself of his sins every time he prays to God. And the unspoken message there is that he is powerless against sin before he came to know Christ, and he is apparently powerless against sin now that he is in a relationship with Christ. 
Dallas Willard refers to this as miserable sinner theology. And it's not right at all. He says, simply put, if we're told often enough that we are miserable sinners who are unable to overcome our shortcomings in God's eyes, then sooner or later we're going to begin to see ourselves in that way. Even though we have already turned to Christ and we have all of his gifts and power at our disposal. For such people living in this state, responding to Jesus doesn't even include the possibility of somehow being formed in his likeness, of being transformed from the inside out so that they can go on to do good things in their lives for his kingdom. Friends, it's not just a problem with our understanding of grace. It's our understanding of Jesus, of what his message was, what his sacrifice meant, what his kingdom means, and what is his mission for you and I. To see the work of Jesus as nothing more than an endless cycle for sin, to forgiveness, is to consign him to the Old Testament priesthood. And surely, as we know, his New Testament priesthood is such a greater one, capable of altering us at our core. I'm so grateful that Christ paid for my sin, eternally grateful. But then we also must be grateful for his resurrection empowerment. He rose so that we may rise and we can have that hope and we can live in that hope and we can do the things that God has set for us. Perhaps we, you and I can usher Jesus out of the Old Testament temple once and for all and receive him not only as a, just a source of forgiveness, but also as the master teacher in our lives. This is the full work of grace. But make no mistake, sin is a cancer and it will kill us in this life and the next if we're not careful. It's serious business and the Father knew that so he provided for us a serious remedy. It's called the new birth or as Paul calls it, the new creation. Peter calls us newborn babies in that new birth. We have to determine which of those phrases are merely religious metaphors or do they depict some sort of spiritual reality for us? Because if it depicts a spiritual reality, this idea of a spiritual birth also contains hope that we're going to grow. Are we forever trapped by the cancer of sin? Absolutely not. We know this. Because grace not only wipes away sin, it also teaches us and empowers us to avoid that sin in the first place. There is a cure. It's not just a weekly treatment, confession and absolution, but there is a cure. Our challenge is how we see Jesus. And for many Christians, it's just seen as a weekly treatment. Because when we limit the work of Jesus to nothing but forgiveness, we lose sight of our ability to experience a new life in him, in the here, in the now, not just in the new creation in heaven. And that would be a shame. Because the cure does really work. Let me share with you a modern parable to maybe help teach this and put this in context. Think about two high school students, two seniors who each receive a letter from Harvard University. They get full rides. Every possible expense has been paid. Now, both of these kids obviously are bright, but they did feel intimidated by going to a college with such a great reputation. And they both thought, I don't deserve to be here. But one student... She gave it all that she had. She studied day and night. While the other student, instead of working hard, 
decided to enjoy the thrill of college life and the parties, the big city nearby, the freedom of being on his own for the first time in his life. By midterm, the first student was working hard, earning C's and even a few B's in her classes. But the second one was failing in every class, placed on academic probation. By Christmas, the first student had earned a 3.0 GPA and the second had flunked out. So my question to you, which of these two students laid hold of or responded to the opportunity given to them? Well, obviously, it was the first student, the one that worked hard, did well. The second student was the object of gossip. How could he throw away a wonderful opportunity like that? Now imagine just for a moment that the grace of God is like a full ride to Harvard. Beyond expectation, all expense paid, a life-changing opportunity. Anyone watching those two students would conclude that the student who had flunked out had thrown away that once-in-a-lifetime chance because the scholarship to Harvard was a gift of grace. But the truth was, the work was just beginning, as we saw in the life of the first student. God's grace is something like this parable. He does for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. And what is beyond our reach is joyfully paid in full by Jesus Christ, but our response to him is just the very beginning. So why would we squander away the possibilities of a new birth in Christ and all that that entails? You and I, just like that student who received a full ride at Harvard and did well, you and I need to receive the grace of God in what is a calling to a new kind of life, a new kind of life today. Now some people, especially Lutherans, might object to the close association with the word work and the word grace. You might ask, well, God's grace comes with no strings attached, right, Pastor Dan? And yes, that's absolutely true. No amount of effort on our part could win God's pardon. That's true. Just not the whole story. Maybe you've heard these churchy terms before, justification and sanctification. Justification is all about what God gives to me, his free gift that I can do nothing to earn. But then there's sanctification. My empowered response to what God has given to me first. And both of those, my friends, are part of our Christian lives. The whole story goes way beyond the fact that God picked up a tab that we couldn't pay. Our new birth in Christ, as a Christian is an invitation to live in the kingdom of God, even as it breaks in here and now on earth. This is demonstrated for us very well by the Apostle Paul. Even in his very earliest days of being converted to Christ, he knew immediately that Jesus had laid out some important purposes for him. Paul was first filled with gratitude for God's grace and forgiveness, and he was eager to get on with the work. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For we are God's fellow workers, talking to the Corinthian church. You are God's field, God's building. He loved these phrases of being a workmanship and privileged to join God's workforce. Paul was well aware that he had no moral standing to, to plant a church or to preach at a church or pastor God's new church in Corinth because he knew what he'd done in his past. He had persecuted Christians for years. But thank goodness he also understood that his qualifications weren't the issue. He said this, 
He said, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I but God who was working through me by his grace. See Paul's strange combination of words that he puts together here? Grace and worked harder all in one sentence. It almost seems like he's trying to puff himself up. I worked harder than all the other apostles, but look what he does. He gives all the glory to God. God who was working through me. By what? By his grace. And friends, the grace that we receive at new birth is only an introduction as students of Jesus, we need grace for our growth as well. Grace opens up the startling possibility that we don't have to yo-yo between sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness. That is not the whole of our life as Christians. I'm going to end with one final passage today from Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus talks about and invites anyone who would follow him to come under his instruction and learn his way of life. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'm weary and burdened sometimes. Maybe most of the time for some people. All you who are weary and burdened, that's all of us. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, grace is more than just knowing, it's about being. And if God wants to give me the grace to be more like Jesus, and if it takes a little effort on my part to learn how to use that, then count me in. That's how we take his yoke upon us. It's how we position ourselves to learn from him. So friends, my prayer for each of you this day and this continuing week in this series is, that you will receive his grace, a grace that goes beyond a daily or a weekly answer to sin, and that each of you can also receive the power that you really do possess, the power of the Spirit inside of you to really live out each day in the joy and the thrill as a disciple of Jesus, learning from him how to bring the kingdom closer to a world that sorely needs it. I ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.